today on Ag News Daily. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Another Ag News Daily podcast here with your host, Delaney Howell and Mike Pearson. Mike, how are you doing today? Oh, Delaney, I tell you what, I am over here doing my part to help the hog market digest these massive supplies that are coming to market. Here at the Zaner Ag Hedge office in Chicago, we had our monthly lunch, and we got it from Carson's Barbecue. And I think everybody but maybe two people in the office had a full rack of pork ribs. Oh, my goodness. And I couldn't finish all mine. I couldn't finish all mine. I'm saving uh, about six, four or six ribs for dinner tonight. But, man, I paired that with a baked potato, and I am ready to take a nap. I'm I'm just very disappointed in you that you couldn't finish it all. I am disappointed in myself, but I will power through it tonight and we'll we'll get it done. The important thing is we are driving demand for pork. That's what we're all about. We are driving demand for pork, Mike, and it appears we're also driving demand for wheat and corn. We had the export sales numbers today and I know you watched those very closely, but it seems that we are still chugging right along, which you know, after such lackluster exports and especially the corn market, it's exciting to see us picking up some pace. Absolutely. So I've got the numbers here in front of me. We did have a marketing year high in wheat sales. We sold uh, 868,000 metric tons of wheat. It's up 73% from the previous week, and it's 95% higher than the prior four-week average. The cool thing about the wheat market the buyers are pretty well dispersed. The largest buyer was the Philippines, and they bought 126,000 metric tons. There were you know, another six other buyers that came in and scooped up chunks of wheat, so we're finding buyers in the international community, and we're finding a dispersed group of buyers, which helps limit our risk. You mentioned corn. Had great export sales in corn. Now, we kind of knew this was coming because we did see Mexico with the, I believe it was the fourth or fifth largest ever one-day export sale uh, two weeks ago last week. Um, so we, we knew that we were going to have big export sales, but USDA reported net sales of 1,709,000 metric tons. That Again, marketing year high, up 96% from the previous week and up considerably from the four-week average. Um, again, the big buyer, of course, was Mexico. They bought a little over 1.1 million metric tons. Japan bought some corn. Uh, who else were the big players? Colombia bought some corn. You know, then just uh, Saudi Arabia, a bunch of other of our, of our usual suspects were in there buying corn. Um, the good news is so we, we had that many sales this last week. We also exported, loaded on boats and shipped off the coast, 720,000 metric tons of corn. Again, a marketing year high. So the, the point you're making is a fantastic one, Delaney. We are finally getting some sales. We're finally moving beyond this lackluster demand period. Now we just have to make sure we can continue because we are still considerably behind USDA's estimates as where we ought to be this time of year. But we made a big step towards it, to, uh, well, this last week. Soybeans. Also, as long as we've got the numbers here, I want to run through it. Net sales of soybeans were 1.4 million metric tons, up 36% from a week ago, up 18% from the four-week average. And big buyer, China. They bought almost half of those. They bought 689,000 metric tons. Um, and that is, is good news. You know, it's the trade likes to see China jumping in there and, and raising their hands for the purchases. Oh, excuse seems, me. It seems that we could continue to see U.S. wheat exports at least heading to Brazil. Brazil is set to kick off their tariff rate 
quota for wheat from countries outside of the Mercosur trade agreement as early as January 1st, and that is expected to spur an additional 70 million in annual U.S. wheat exports, according to a new analysis put together by the USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service. All right. Well, that would be good news for America's wheat growers. We got to get that stuff moving. We got to get buyers in that market so the bulls can have a little room to run here after this uh, rally we've been on for the past three weeks. Absolutely, Mike. Well, you know, we talked about this yesterday, but today it has been confirmed. China did announce earlier today that they are going to sell 40,000 tons of frozen pork from their state reserves. They're going to have this auction on December 23rd. And, you know, like we mentioned before, this is their way to try to mitigate some of the price inflation that has been going on in their domestic hog market, especially ahead of the Lunar New Year holiday in China, which, just like all holidays in China, are huge times for Chinese consumers to eat pork. So we'll see that sale coming out on December 23rd. Well, another thing we talked about yesterday on the podcast that we really haven't talked about a whole lot is the impeachment hearings, and we did see the House vote to impeach and confirm an impeachment vote for President President Trump's presidency. So now really the next steps are to head to the Senate, and uh, we haven't seen the House release those impeachment documents yet. And so what I understand from just some reading about it this morning is that the House has to release those trial documents before the Senate can take it up in the floor there. But it's definitely not going to be before the end of this year, it sounds like. And so other things that we're watching that really could, you know, slow the timeline for the impeachment trials are the USMCA votes. And so we heard from Senate Agriculture Committee Debbie Stabenow as well as Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley that they are hoping the USMCA vote can take place before the impeachment trial begins in the Senate, but really not sure that that's going to be able to happen. Yeah, that seems like the wild card. The good news is, with the impeachment stuff done in the House, we do expect the House to vote and pass yes. USMCA today at some point. They're having two hours' worth of discussion on it on the House floor. Uh, the expectation is that most of the representatives are just going to kind of cheerlead it and kind of brag about you know how great it is and all this. Mm-hmm. And then after the end of those two hours, they will vote and it will pass, and then it will get kicked over to the Senate, where you know again impeachment is going to be the wild card. When does Mitch McConnell take? up impeachment? When does Mitch McConnell take up USMCA? When are we going to actually see this thing get ratified and move on to the final stages? That's right. So those are some things we're watching. So hopefully we see that and can share that great news with you guys tomorrow that the House has indeed passed the USMCA in a landslide vote. Right. Which is, by all indications, what we expect to see. Absolutely. We got some bad news for biofuel producers out of D.C. earlier today. We were talking earlier, the Trump administration had made some comments that they were probably just going to go ahead and roll with the EPA's proposal for the biofuel uh, renewable volume obligations, but nothing had been confirmed. Well, today it was confirmed. EPA is going to stick to the method they outlined in October where they're going to do a three-year rolling average of 
gallons exempted by the small refinery waivers and roll those back into the RVO. Now, this has farm groups frustrated. I saw a statement put out earlier by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. She's frustrated. Basically, everybody on the ag side was hoping President Trump would come around and find a different way to more accurately account for these gallons that have been lost. But that door is closed. Now we're going to be seeing exactly what the EPA puts out for the RVO probably in the early part of next year. And then we'll have a pretty decent idea as to what we can expect for uh, corn, at least corn fuel, ethanol going forward. Um, you know, the big wild card, of course, Delaney, on all of these things is uh, what does this look like in an election year? There's going to be all sorts of discussion. Will President Trump allow the EPA to issue as many small refinery exemptions as he has in the past? If this is already upsetting farmers, I don't know. But we're going to have to pay attention. This could be a, a hot-button topic in the farm belt come uh, election time. And we saw the EPA, besides the final renewable fuel standard, release another piece of information that could help or hinder farm country, depending on how you look at it here. But the EPA provided some clarity for pesticide applications and use on industrial hemp fields. They have proposed the continued use of atrazine herbicide on corn and other crops, as well as hemp production now. And so hemp growers currently have nine biopesticides and one conventional pesticide to use on that crop. And this really just adds some clarity for those growers looking to add some hemp production in 2020. We've been waiting for the EPA and USDA to release some more rules so producers know exactly what they can and can't do if they're looking to add that to their operation this next year. All right. Well, it's good to get some clarity, Delaney. That's something that industry has been clamoring for ever since the, uh, the Farm Bill passed. It's nice to get some rules rolling out so folks know what is allowed and, more importantly, what isn't allowed, especially when you're planting such a high-value crop. It certainly is, Mike. And I want to share just one other quick piece of news here, and then I think I'm pretty much out for today, and that's tomorrow is a big day of deadlines for producers. We see the 2019 Market Facilitation Program deadline as well as the Dairy Margin Coverage Protection deadline. And so far we've seen about 600,000 producers sign up for MFP, according to Undersecretary Northey. And he said so far we've seen payments to total Payments to farmers total about $10.65 billion. We also saw kind of some final prevent plant acre numbers, and we saw 19.6 million acres for prevent plant. And as we talked about earlier this week on the podcast, we're seeing the Cong- or we're seeing Congress pass a little bit more disaster relief aid, which I'm guessing some of those dollars will be sent out to those producers who reported some of those high prevent plant acres this year? I would imagine so. I believe to qualify for those disaster payments, or at least for the first round, um, your county had to be declared an yes. emergency or a disaster area, which, I, you know, for those flooded counties, there was a pile of them. There is. Yes, I think that is correct. Well, I tell you what, Delaney, I am all out of news as well. Should we jump in and see what happened in the markets today? Let's do it. 
All right. As we look at the grains, we've got pretty much red on the screen all the way down, but not huge patches of red. In the corn market, March corn was down three quarters of a penny at 386 and a quarter. May also down three quarters, closed at 392 and three quarters. In soybeans, the January dropped three and a half cents to finish at 925 even. The March dropped four, closed the day at 936 and a half. In Chicago wheat, that March contract was down three cents at 542 and a quarter. The May down two and a half, finishing up at 549 and a quarter. Looking over to the world of livestock, we've got again red on the screen in the feeder cattle, uh, excuse me, in the live cattle markets. December live cattle down 12 and a half cents at 122.1250. February down 50 cents, closed at 125.62 and a half. In feeders, we've got mixed trade with the January contract up 17 and a half cents at 144.7250. The March down seven and a half to close the day at one forty four eighty two fifty. And in lean hogs, February up a dollar oh seven fifty, close the day at seventy ninety seven fifty, and the April up twenty seven and a half cents, closing at seventy seven. Looking over at the dairy market in class three milk, the December dropped three cents to close at six, excuse me, nineteen thirty six. The January up six cents, finishing at seventeen forty. Delindy, why don't you tell us who we're talking to in our interview today? Well, Mike, we had a great conversation with Yulia Bayo-Bravo and Barry Pittendry of Michigan State University working on some fascinating research in developing agricultural countries. Well, we are joined today by two faculty at Michigan State University, Ms. Julia Bayo-Bravo and Barry Pittendry, who have been doing some fascinating research looking at helping those developing agricultural countries. Julia, I want to turn it over to you first. Share with us your background. I think it's very obvious that you have an accent, but tell us about, about your background and how you got to where you are today. Okay, wow, that is a long story, and probably we don't have enough time to tell you all about me but um, I am originally from Spain. I come from um, a rural area, a small village in Spain, but I have been here in the U.S. for many years. I came here to learn English, and I learned English when I was 28 years old. So, And um, after that, I started a master in business administration. My background is law. Then I started a master in business administration, and then a PhD in foreign languages and cultures. And then I work in the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in extension in um, international programs and studies, and then in the Center for African Studies. And then I moved to MSU, Michigan State University, and I am here in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition. So. That is a very diverse background, and like I always said, I recycled myself many times, and I did many different things, and this make my um, make my experience very rich. So that that is me. Fantastic! It's so neat to see a wealth of knowledge from around the world coming together to develop new programs. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the recent study uh, that you've put together that uh, really was the reason for our call? Perfect. Yes. So I will um, start talking a little about the program that we are running. It's called Scientific Animation Without Borders. This program was launched in the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign 
in 2011. And the rationale behind this program is how to take information in, and knowledge to people that cannot read or write, that live in rural areas, so they don't have access to information, and they speak many different languages. So how we can take you know, information that is very relevant for them to improve their daily life and to these uh, rural areas. So then um, we have been doing uh, creating educational materials in the form of animations translated into local languages and deployed through mobile phones or any other electronic devices. And then, um, of course, after doing this, we also need to know what is the impact that these animations have, if people really learn, if they improve their daily life, because that is like the mission behind the, the program. So this uh, research study we started in um, 2015. We have some funding to work with uh, another group in Iowa State University, and then uh, also with um, another group in Mozambique. So the funding was like finding what, what was the, um, the gap that people in this, um, in the north of Mozambique, in Gurue, north of Mozambique, has in terms of um, soil fertility, uh, post-harvest last, last storage. So what was the gap that these people have? So we started doing like focus group and understanding what, what was the main concern that farmers, farmers suffer in this area. So one of the main concerns was like they didn't have um, quality seeds to plant for the next season. And when they didn't have quality seeds, they couldn't buy because there was no, um, they couldn't buy, right? So then they have to save the seeds, but then the seeds were attacked by insects so then they have a big losses every year. So that was the main problem for them. So then um, we realized that they have, you know, jerry can containers where they store their waters. So we were thinking we can, um, you know, maybe show them this technique where you can store the seed in your jerry can container. Um, seal hermetically and then don't open until the next season, right? Where you have to plant the beans. So this is what uh, we did. So this is how our research study started there. So we just did like focus group first, then um, we did like several experiments. One experiment was only animation, explaining how to store the beans in the jerry can container. Another um, experiment was using animation plus um, a talk by extension agent. Another one was combining animation and the traditional extension talk. So in another uh, experiment, there was like four experiments, right? Was like um, animation and then a PowerPoint presentation, if I remember well. So then, um, we did like the research and then we analyzed the data and we realized that animation only has um, higher learning gains than any other approaches. So animation only and then animation plus extension talk has the higher learning gains. So this is why um, we decided that that was the, the technique that we have to promote. So then we went two years later 
and then we follow up. We did another research study following up to see how many people have adopted the technique. And then this is the reason for the paper. 89% of the people have adopted the technique and they also share the technique with other farmers. So we don't know how many people already are using the technique. So this is like, yeah, mainly the, the research that we did there. That is very fascinating. Sorry, Barry, to go ahead. To put it, uh, just to summarize what Huli was saying is they, they looked at a, a, a value chain, an agricultural value chain, looked for a gap in knowledge in that agricultural value chain, and then inserted an animation um, into that to teach people uh, about a particular technique that could help in that, po that component of the value chain, and then observed these very high adoption rates two years later. Got it. Okay. So besides obviously the language barrier, I was reading through some of the information that you guys have released about this study, and it looks like education and then also language and gender were barriers that you faced in getting the Mozambiques to adopt this animated technology or just using some of the technology that or um, adoption that was shown in the video. How did you go about working around those two barriers? And how, I guess, also could you fill us in on how gender and language form barriers for adopting these processes? You want so, to answer that, Betty? Yeah, or oh, I can answer. It's up to you. Um, no, might, I'll, I'll, I can take it. So one of the challenges um, in terms of getting information out to people in many rural areas in developing nation countries is um, oftentimes they will not speak the national language um, or typically they'll speak a local language. So a lot of the extension materials and outreach materials are not available in a, in a local language that's understandable to them. So the point of the program, Scientific Animation Without Borders, is to really make that materials available to people in the local language. So this is part of the point of the program, is to take down that barrier of language, because language is a significant challenge for uh, deployment of information in, in um, many rural areas of Africa and in other parts of the world in, in develop, within the developing nation context. Um, in terms of gender, um, one of the things that was observed in this study was that um, women learned more from the animation approach uh, than men did. And um, it was because, because uh, part of how the classic extension um, presentations would occur, uh, women were not as engaged in the, that process, but in the animation process where they were watching this on the phone, uh, they partook in, in reenacting what was going on in the techniques uh, and getting very much involved with um, retraining others in that process. So it was a much more active involvement by women in the process. So um, one of the things that was very exciting during this, this project was to see a higher level of engagement and higher levels of learning um, by women uh, participating in, in this particular treatment. Now, it's really fascinating that we're, we've reached an area where we can take this, uh, this technology video animation and bring it out to people around the world in, in third world countries and developing nations. And I guess my question is, how are most of the participants viewing these materials? Are they viewing them in classes put on by, uh, by extension folks? Or are they viewing them on their, uh, their cell phone? Uh, Julio, what yes. have you found? Yes. So 
you know, there is a high penetration of mobile phones in developing countries. That is the reality, right? So even in rural areas, most of the people have cell phones. Even if they are like basic cell phones, they still have video capacity and, and, and uh, Bluetooth. So then they can watch videos, they can share videos. So that, that is not a problem. Technology is very well developed. Um, so these, um, these animations, they are, you know, they can access through mobile phones, but uh, they can be also used by extension agents in tablet and computers, um, you know, PowerPoint presentations too, they can be used like, they can be used in many different ways. We also have an app, it's called the Swabo Deployer app, and it's for uh, Android phone, and you can download our library of animations looking by topic, country, and language. So if you have like a smartphone, like most of the extension agents have mobile phones that are like smartphones. So they can download the app for free, and then they can download animations that they are going to use in their educational programs when they have online connection. And then when they are in the rural area and they don't have internet, then they still can show the animation and they can share the animations with other cell phones through Bluetooth technology. So in that way, then it is very easy to just leave behind with, you know, these educational materials that people can watch and ca they can revisit many times to understand the information that we are providing in the animation. So this is how we deploy our animations and sometimes also TV stations, radio programs, there are like many different ways where this animation, this information can be conveyed for the users. I think it's fascinating that you look at, especially those countries in Africa and so many of those people also have smartphones and are doing much more advanced things with money and transfer of knowledge than we're doing here in the U.S. But Julia and Barry, as you look at the future, obviously this was a big first step in helping educate those people about how to produce their food, but what other areas do you see as being needed to develop to get those people to be able to, to grow and feed their own population? Mm -hmm. Yes, so the core areas of our program is agriculture, health, and women empowerment. But right now we are also introducing peace and justice so we think that there is a big need for this, you know, to introduce peace and justice, to animations about peace and justice, to educate the general population about democratic system, about, you know, all these issues that can be very problematic, right? So that, yeah, maybe Barry can answer a little more. When you had the question, it sort of faded out, but I, my understanding is sort of what, what are sort of next things that we're working on, is that correct? Yes. Okay, so, so we're, we're um, have a diversity of projects um, that deal with um, everything from past problems. So we have an ongoing work around fall armyworm, which is a major pest that's uh, uh, impacted. Uh, of course, it's, it's been a long time an important pest in the Americas, um, but it's, it's hit Africa and Asia in the last several years. So we've been working with quite a diversity of groups um, both in Africa and in Asia, uh, to create educational content around um, identifying and managing the pest, um, and have placed that in, I think, over 30 different languages 
um, and, and work with quite a diversity of organizations right from West Africa uh, uh, throughout um, uh, into East Africa and Asia as well. So um, that is another area that we've been working on. So we continue to push forward on a lot of agriculturally oriented topics. Um, and as well, we've had some, as Julia mentioned, some recent exciting um, interactions with groups around how to convey messages about uh, issues associated with conflict. Fascinating. It will be neat to see this technology move forward into the future and hopefully bring more folks out of poverty and out of hunger and make them more self-sufficient. Doctors Bell Bravo and Pittendry, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and for filling us in on the work you're doing out there around the world. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Well, Delaney, I tell you what, that is some interesting stuff. And, you know, I, I always get the question from producers, why are we teaching our competitors how to grow crops? Why are we sharing our trade secrets? Too. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, I think when you approach it from these professors' perspective, it's we're not teaching them to grow. Well, we are, obviously, but we're teaching them how to survive, you know, make a living and ideally yeah, keep their family afloat. So that's the idea here is, you know, you're, we can maybe raise all boats by a, by raising those who are lowest amongst us. And uh, for a lot of folks, that's ag in the developing world. That it is, Mike. That it is. Well, Delaney, I tell you what, if listeners want to get caught up on all the news affecting the world of agriculture, they can hear our past podcast episodes by going to agnewsdaily.com. There you'll find us. You'll find connections to all of our other partners on the Global Ag Network. And you can sign up for a weekly newsletter. Be sure to do that. It's got updates, articles, outlooks from around the GAN community, and it features market commentary by yours truly from the Zaner Group here in Chicago. Delaney, with that, should we let the listeners go? Let's let him go.